We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have uh, your Bible on your phone or your tablet or your trusty paper Bible, open it up. Just a couple of things is, is one is, is uh, we had a great visit with Nicholas and Hannah this last week as they came to kind of look at the church and, and just over and over again, they said how much they appreciated all of you as a church family and the friendliness and the encouragement that they received. And so right now we're in the process of just kind of nailing down some of those final details in order to extend um, just a, an official invitation. But uh, you can be praying for them and be praying for the ministry of the church. I am so thankful for all of you. And, uh, and I don't just say that. I don't just say that just to, um, just to kind of um, throw words out there. I really am thankful for all of you and the way um, that you um, support the ministry of the church and support ministries around the world, the way that you pray, um, the way um, that you give of your time and your energy, um, the way that you support the ministries financially. I just really am thankful for you. And uh, when, when we're healthy as a local church, um, we can be a huge blessing to our community and then all over the world. And, um, and so um, please continue um, to pray. Please continue um, to just be the body of Christ. Um, let's, let's do what we can to support each other and encourage each other and point each other to Jesus. Um, and then um, let's do what we can to be a blessing um, to others. And, you know, a part of that is, is, is just, um, you know, supporting the ministry um, that he has for us. And I feel sometimes like I say this selfishly because this is what I do. It's just what I do, and I don't know anything different. And I'm, I'm glad that the Lord lets me to do it. Um, but, um, but when you support the ministry of the church, um, prayerfully is, is we can invest the time and the energy um, together um, to reach our community and our world. And so, um, but do be praying for Nicholas and Hannah, um, a, a really sweet couple. And uh, we're looking forward to just continuing this conversation um, with them and, uh, and just excited about it. So um, we've been in a series in First Peter uh, for quite a while now. Um, I think that this is our ninth week, if I'm counting correctly. Um, the passage that we're in today is an interesting passage. It's actually a really complicated passage, too, which is why a few weeks ago I decided to go slow down and go through it a little bit more slowly. Um, but uh, I can't say that I'll solve all of the problems that it presents, um, but it'll be interesting. So let's dig into it. One of the themes that's prevalent throughout um, Peter's letter is we call this a letter, an epistle is this theme of suffering. And he's writing to this group of churches that's now in modern-day Turkey, and he's encouraging them, and he's helping them to know how to persevere in the midst of suffering, while at the same time living good lives that honor him and are a witness to others. In 1 Peter 3.17, it says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I mean, that should just seem to be a giving, but, given, but a lot of suffering is actually the result of sin. A lot of our own suffering is the result of sin. And so it's important to remember, and Peter's kind of driving this home, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so notice the phrase, it is better. It is better in the eyes of God and before others, 
And Peter's writing these believers who are feeling the mounting pressure of opposition. In fact, they may be losing heart. They might be getting discouraged. They might be getting disoriented and even depressed. And they may be wondering if it's worth it. Have you ever been there? I mean, when just everything seems to be going wrong and it's like, hey, God, do you have something against me right now? Because it seems like, hey, I trust you, but everything is going wrong. Have you ever gotten discouraged? Maybe even depressed? Wondering what's going on? And Peter reminds these individuals that are in that situation that they have a living hope, that because of what Jesus has done for them, they're they are God's chosen people. They have this living hope. They've been ransomed from their past lives and that they are to live holy lives of sincere brotherly love, loving each other deeply from the heart as people who have been born again. And that's the whole first two chapters, and that's just the summary of it. And Peter reminds them to rejoice even though they have been grieved by various trials, knowing that their faith is being tested and proved genuine. But he also reminds them that Jesus suffered for them and that he is an example and we can follow in his footsteps. And so 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24 points us to Jesus. It says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that means insulted, He did not revile, insult, and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And so we're given this example. The example of Jesus is is that when he was insulted, he didn't insult back. He didn't punish those who were unjustly persecuting him. He didn't threaten. He just entrusted himself to God the Father and he he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we will die to sin and live to righteousness. It's important for us to remember is is that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to remember. Sometimes when things are going wrong, I wonder if God is upset with me. And we have to be careful because some suffering is the result of sin. Sometimes it's the result of living in a broken world. And for the Christian, sometimes, and in many places in the world, it's because of our faith in Jesus. And what Peter wants us to know is that it's better, it is better to suffer for doing what is good. It is better than what? It is better than suffering because we did evil. That we were doing something wrong. In 1 Peter 2.20, Peter says that if we suffer for our faith and we endure, then it's commendable. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Notice how Peter brings us back to Jesus. Christ Jesus also suffered. He suffered for doing what is right. His sinless life actually provoked hostility from those who you'd least expect to resist him. And what's even more 
amazing is, is that his suffering was for sins. But his suffering was as a righteous man for the unrighteous. It's hard for us to grasp the significance of this. Ferrello LaGuardia, if you recognize that name, LaGuardia International Airport is named after him. He was the mayor of New York City during the 1930s. And as mayor, he would occasionally preside um, over um, police court. In the absence of a judge, sometimes it was said that he would even dismiss a judge to go home and he would take over. On one bitter cold day, a man was brought before him for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. Knowing that the man was guilty, Mayor Lagoardia said, I have to punish you. The law makes no exception. You're fined $10. The man had no money at all and therefore no hope. Then Lagardia reached into his own pocket and said, here's $10 and I now remit your fine. Furthermore, he said, I'm fining everyone in the courtroom 50 cents because we live in a city where people are starving. And then he ordered the bailiff to pass his hat around and collect the money, which came to $47.50. Now there's a couple of variations of this story and I always want to find out if things are true. So I did a bunch of research on it. It is true that LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City in the 1930s, and it is true that he presided over court cases. And interestingly is, is we can't disprove this story, and it might be legend. But you have to love it, because it speaks of both the justice that is needed in our world and the incredible grace that every single one of us need. You see, at the heart of the gospel is God's punishment of sin and the cross of Christ. Sin had to be punished because God in his very character is holy and just. But God is also loving and merciful, so he stepped out of heaven, he took on flesh, he lived the life that you and I can't live, and he died as a perfect sacrifice to pay for sin. My sin, your sin. The message is so simple that even a young child can understand it. Jesus paid for our sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When Jesus went to the cross, the demands of the law were satisfied. God, our judge, has also paid the fine for us. And we, the lawbreakers, are set free as an undeserved gift. Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the death of Christ. Sin was paid for on the cross of Christ, but the gospel, the good news that we all need, isn't just about the payment of sin. It's also about resurrection and new life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he writes that what I delivered to you as first importance is what I also received. That Christ died for sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in the accordance with the scriptures. And Paul goes on to say is, is that Jesus, after his death on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared first to Peter, then to the 12, then to more than 500 others, and then to James. 
And then last of all, he writes that Jesus appeared to me as one unnaturally born. And what he's referring to is is that when Jesus appeared to him while he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And we're told that that the apostle Paul was struck, that he was blinded. And Jesus directly confronted him. And it's only after that confrontation by Jesus himself did he understand who Jesus was and what he had done. And then it was like going from blindness to sight. And for him it actually was because we're told that he was struck blind and then it was a few days later when the scales fell from his eyes and he could finally see. But that, that seeing wasn't just a physical seeing, it was a spiritual seeing. He had been unnaturally born again. And then just a few verses later, Paul says that if there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And 1 Corinthians 15, 16 says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So the death of Christ is certainly the heart of the gospel message, but so isn't the resurrection. And this is what Peter is getting at. Peter is telling us that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And it'd be easy for us to lose the primary point Peter is making and what follows, because what follows is one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament to understand. And so I'm going to read it. And then if you have the answer you can stand up and come take my place. First <laughs> Peter three eighteen through 20 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. One commentator writes, This passage in 1 Peter is one of the most debated and written about from the earliest days of the church. It has been understood in different ways. And even among today's interpreters, this passage has a reputation for perhaps being the most difficult in the entire New Testament. Martin Luther, who was kind of a smart guy, um, said about this passage, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Because there's so many questions that come out of this particular passage, like who are these spirits in prison? When and where did he proclaim to them? And what did he proclaim And how does Noah and the ark relate to this and to us? One commentary that I was reading this week referred to 18 different theories on what this passage is saying. I mean, people have written doctoral um, dissertations just on this this little passage right here. Um, And it's a good thing that uh, a doctoral dissertation isn't isn't uh, dependent on being able to prove exactly what it says. It would 
And it would be so easy for us to get into the weeds here, which is why I want to remind us of the context. You see, so sometimes when it comes to passages like these, we can spend so much time trying to figure them out that we either end in air or we start new air. Um, and we get focused on, you know, the, I think it was the Apostle Paul who said that you can fo- focus on foolish controversies. It is an important passage. It's also important not to miss the point for all of the different possible things that we could delve into. Peter is writing to encourage believers in the midst of suffering. That's the main point. He reminds them that Jesus' own suffering on their behalf, he reminds them of Jesus' suffering on their behalf, and he tells them why Jesus suffered, that he might bring us to God. So a quick word on the spirits in prison. There are a few possibilities of who these spirits might be. They might be the people of Noah's day who rejected Noah's pleas to repent and to honor God and are therefore now in prison which would refer to Hades. They might be spirits in the sense of being fallen angels. The fallen angels, either of Genesis 6, who left their places to to literally mate with mankind. Both 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 speak of angels being kept in darkness or in chains awaiting final judgment. And so it's perfectly possible that this passage refers to those particular fallen angels or the sons of God, as are described in Genesis chapter 6, who started to interact with human beings, bringing even greater evil to humanity. And we don't need to reconcile exactly what is meant here. What matters is, is Jesus' victory over evil has been demonstrated in his death and on the cross and in the resurrection. His victory proclaimed in verse 19 is demonstrated in verse 20. And the point is, is that Christ's victory is over every evil power. That's the dominant thought here. He suffered unjustly for doing good, just like Peter's readers. And even though his suffering led to death, it was followed by resurrection, and it was proclaimed. Peter records this journey that Jesus made. Twice it says that he went. This journey of Christ to the cross, to this proclamation of victory to disobedient spirits and to his bodily resurrection. And so twice this word, he went. The first part of the journey is his proclamation and the second is his destination. The proclamation Jesus made was to the spirits who rebelled against God in Noah's day. They are described as those who did not obey, which interestingly is the characteristic of everyone who rejects God. And as a result, they were put in chains and they are now awaiting final judgment. And one might wonder is, is what exactly did Jesus proclaim? The word in the original language is not the same kind of word that we use for proclaiming the gospel. Instead, it's a word for proclaiming the arrival of a king or victory in battle. 
So as Jesus goes into his resurrected body, he is announcing his victory over sin and death and evil and Satan. It's as though he is saying, it is finished. I have won the victory that needs to be won over sin and death and evil and Satan. It's an announcement. And the journey continues in verses 21 and 22, and baptism becomes an important metaphor here. But notice the full journey of Jesus from death to resurrection to where he is now in heaven. And so here, here's what verses 21 and 22 say. Baptism, which cor- corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Are you noticing the journey? The journey from the cross to the proclamation to these spirits to resurrection, to heaven. There's this journey that Christ has made on our behalf. Jesus Christ who suffered is now in heaven and has triumphed over all of his foes. Though the forces of evil and evildoers still do their worst right now here on earth and do their worst to persecute followers of Jesus. Even though all of this is true, Jesus is victorious. And one day, all will recognize him as Lord. Scripture talks about a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that those who follow Jesus will lift their head to see their Savior. And those who have chosen to be disobedient will bend their knee and their head in shame. There's another theme that runs through this entire passage, and it's the salvation of believers. You see, Jesus suffered to deal once and forever with all of our sins. And he did this by dying as a sin offering in our place, the unrighteous, or the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, only a perfect, only a perfect sacrifice could pay for sins. It's the reason why during the Old Testament, it was sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. It was bloody business. And then even the priests who would go in to make the sacrifices, that they would go through all of these cleansing rituals just to go into the Holy of Holies. They would would go in cleansed, but the moment that they came out, they were once again defiled and could not re-enter the holy place without more cleansing. And every year, more sacrifices were needed because of sin. And it's only a pure and undefiled priest that could make a once and for all sacrifice and who is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, thus sacrifice we all need. And so he gave himself once and forever for our sins. He did this by dying as a sin offering. While salvation is primarily future, 
It is held in heaven for us and will arrive when Christ is revealed. And right now, when we put our faith in Christ, we are brought to our shepherd. We're brought to our shepherd, the Savior of our souls. At the end of 1 Peter 2, verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That we're brought to Jesus who will lead us home to God. This will not be thwarted. And this can be seen in the example of what happened in Noah's day. Peter links the victory of Christ over evil and the salvation won by Christ for believers by joining together his proclamation to the spirits of Noah's day. With the experience of Noah and his family, they were saved while those who rejected Noah's pleas pleas were judged. Noah and his family were in a position similar to Noah's readers. You think about Noah and his families, they faced hostile neighbors and evil and were under great pressure. He was ridiculed for his righteousness, and yet he persevered. Noah and his family waited for the day when God would deliver him and them. And judgment came with the floodwaters. God, who sent the waters, saved them and carried them through the flood and to a new life. Which when you read Genesis 9, that's exactly how it's presented. In the same way, Peter says, you are saved by going through the waters of baptism which will lead to new life. Now, it's important to know that Peter qualifies the statement. That it's not baptism in and of itself that saves. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Undergoing baptism is a sign that you have appealed to God for your deliverance. When we read the whole of Scripture, it's hard to argue that baptism in and of itself saves. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In several places, salvation is linked to both belief and repentance. In fact, from everything that we can understand when we take in the whole of Scripture, belief, saying, I I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you came, that you lived the life that I couldn't live, and that you died on the cross for me in order to pay for my sins and repentance. I'm sorry. Lord, for my sin, forgive me. And I would say that baptism is closely connected 
because baptism proclaims one's salvation and that we are identifying with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is our appeal to God that we have a good conscience toward him. Baptism is our way of calling on God. It's our way of saying, I trust you. Take me into you as you took Noah into the ark. And here's the thing. Jesus is already in heaven. But one day, he will bring you to him. And baptism is the sign that this will happen. Just as the ark is a sign of God's salvation. The Bible knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. Following faith, baptism is the proclamation of our new life in him. It's a proclamation. It's a pledge of a good conscience toward him. It's a plea that he would take us into him as he took Noah into the ark. And it is the mark that we are his. If you haven't been baptized, I encourage you to own your faith. Proclaim the new life that we find in him. Make the pledge of a good conscience towards him. Plea that God would take you into him as he took Noah into the ark and become marked as his. And we would love to celebrate your baptism. Christians may find that leading a godly life leads to hostility and persecution. That said, our lives are to be shaped by our faith in Christ and by his example. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we're to set apart Christ as Lord. Revere him in our hearts and be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Even if we face resistance and suffering, we can know that Christ has already gained the victory over evil, over our sin, and over Satan, and that he will bring us safely to God. You can trust him. We can trust him. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good and you're so gracious. And Lord, we do, we plead, forgive us our sins. Thank you for the victory that you have already won and proclaimed over all evil and all sin and all darkness and over Satan. Lord, may we live in the victory. May we seek you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. May we trust you 
If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, it's just as simply, it's just as simple as saying as Jesus, I believe that you are my Lord and that you are my Savior and that you died for my sins. I repent of my sins. Forgive me. I trust you. Receive me as you receive Noah into the ark. And help me to follow you each day and every day. And if, you've, if, you, if, you've, if you're doing that and you've never done that before, then the Bible says that you are a child of God and a co-heir with Jesus. And that there's a salvation that's held for you in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2. And that it is secure. That it is an inheritance. And that we do not need to fear sin and death. Because we have a savior who is victorious over both. And if this is just a good reminder or even an encouragement to you, you can just agree by saying, yes, Jesus, I agree. Father God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Be with us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.